everybody. Welcome to DLN's Expert Access, which is a closer look at important and relevant topics in the architecture, design, and landscape industry led by experts, led by leading experts. Uh, and uh, just to, to tell you what we're, what's going on today, our topic uh, today is, is taking a look at the importance of raising consciousness about the dangers of toxic lawn and garden chemicals and the importance of planting native species to protect the health of yourself, your pets, your kids, and at the end of the day, our planet. And I'm delighted, delighted to be joined by my dear friend, Edwina Van Gogh, founder of the Perfect Earth Project, which is a nonprofit organization raising consciousness about the dangers of synthetic lawn and garden chemicals to humans, animals, and the environment and educate homeowners and professionals about natural, perfect, which toxin-free techniques that provide beautiful, safe results at no extra cost. Edwina has now initiated Two Thirds for the Birds, which is a call to action for the landscape design, for landscape design and environmental professionals such as myself and hopefully many of us here today on this Zoom. So uh, without further ado, I introduce my, my friend Edwina, fabulous Edwina Van Gaal of Perfect Earth. Take it away, Edwina. Okay, thank you, Brian. Thank you, Becky, Megan, everybody at DLN. I so appreciate your uh, being here with me. I guess uh, for many of you, it's for your lunchtime. Um, and so I'm going to zip through my talk because basically, I'm not sure what you want to know. And so I'm going to tell you some things, but try to leave a lot of time for, um, for questions. So here we go. The per Perfect Earth Project. Uh, this is where I live. I'm a landscape designer. This is my inspiration. I'm very lucky to live here all times of the year. It's amazing. So I, I like the fact that I don't have to design it. It's protected wetlands. But it's on the east end of Long Island, and lately we've been having problems like this, which is toxic blue-green algae in some of the most expensive real estate on Earth. And um, this is Lake Agawam, right, the center of Southampton, ringed by lawns. So I was thinking, wow, what is, and, and I have this, I had this happen too, this is my grandson. And um, so, you know, all of these things added up to me wondering, what, what, role do I have to play in um, this contamination? And what role does the landscape industry have to play? Because uh, I started looking at my clients' properties and all around the world realized I had never asked, you know, what are you doing with, uh, how are you maintaining this? <laughs> Once I design it, I'm gone, what's going on? And so I realized that there are a lot of chemicals being used. I, I started asking clients, let's look at your, um, your contracts, let's see what, is happening here. And what a little bit of preliminary research revealed that like two to four times more chemicals are being used on managed non-agricultural landscapes than on, than on agriculture, because we don't, we're not controlled because we're not eating it. So, and you know, more is more. So I decided, what if we just went without? What if we stopped? What would happen? Of course, the landscape industry tells you, oh my God, horrible things are gonna happen. Like <laughs> everything will die, everything will be eaten. Um, what I found out in the process of working with my clients is that's just not true. 
Um, it's not the fault or the design of the landscape industry to tell you that, it's just they don't know any other way. And um, we're coming from a sort of innocent background that's the, the way it all started was not to be toxic. It was thought to be good. And the uh, original lawn care products came out of uh, post-war posterity. They were um, a lot of, they were actually byproducts of wartime. And um, everybody thought this was great. And that like, sort of post-war, you know, maybe some, um, post-traumatic stress, people wanted a completely perfect, weed-free, everything lawn, sort of mili the military look. And so this became the enemy, this adorable little plant became the enemy because you can see it for blocks away. And it, it doesn't look really bad on a, on a package, even though you know, it's being sent to you as evil. And so, and this became very out of fashion. And so over time, what we ended up with is this, landscapes that are filled with plants that nothing will eat. And um, there's, there's no life there. These are food deserts. And this is the landscape industry. There's nothing about growing. It's all about control and killing. And this is what else we lost is our biome. This is why, because it was like, why are these chemicals bad for us? They're highly sophisticated. We got rid of DDT. We replaced it with things that are more sophisticated, more targeted. Well, your biome consists of fungi and bacteria, and, um, and it's actually 10 times more populous than your own cells, and it runs everything. And those things are bacteria and fungi, what chemicals kill, insect, and even little insects are in your body. So, um, and we've all been eating well, we're eating our kale, but we're walking across toxic landscapes to get to our organic kale garden. And so I came up with a program and decided to start Perfect Earth to help people understand how can this be done, the way it will happen, because what I did learn is that the landscape industry, the, the people who are doing the work, they are not gonna be the leaders. I tried that, it did not work. It, they, they're working with the business model. They don't feel clients will come around. So I am now focusing on us, both clients and designers to be the leaders, the thought leaders, the fashion leaders, whatever to say it's possible, it's important, it's doable, and it does not have to cost more. So number one, you start with the soil. Everybody's heard that before, but sort of, I don't know how it, easy it is to actually sort of say, okay, I've heard that, what do I do with it? What do I do with that information? And so one way to deal with that is you protect the soil. You do not blow it free of leaves in the fall um, and leave it to bake in the sun and the frost and freeze thaw all winter long and remove all habitat for every moth, butterfly, caterpillar that might have thought they could find some protection there. And don't even get me started on the drip tubes, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> because, um, and so the, the biggest mistake that most people make is, is watering. They do the set it and forget it. They water a little bit too often, whereas you should water very seldom and very deep. And then that pulls the roots down and you're not all dried out on the surface, or if it dries on the surface, it doesn't hurt the plants, which you should let it do because if you don't let it dry on the surface, you are gonna get 
fungus diseases, you are gonna get more ticks and mosquitoes. You need your surface to be relatively dry. And that goes for grass and plants and everything. And now there are new um, great systems that are um, remote. So you don't have to worry about whether or not you're, you, can, you can run that clock. You just, you can make sure that the system is set according to the time of year, according to the weather that's happening, according to the place. And of course, everybody knows too, less lawn. What does that mean? Well, and more natives. So of course you have to know what a native is and good news, the pressure, more people are talking natives, more, more of the nurseries are offering natives, but we have to keep putting that pressure on. Ask for natives and where to put them? Well, in place of the lawn. You do not have to go and rip out every exotic you ever put in. Just keep adding natives and paring the lawn down to only the amount that you actually use. And there are 40 million acres of lawn in the United States, which is our largest irrigated crop. So if we happen to reduce that by half, those 20 million acres are actually more than all of our, our, our natural spaces now, in most cases, like our, our national parks. So we could create an entirely new system. So um, that's why I'm starting this new initiative, Two Thirds for the Birds because Doug Talmy has done the research that says that if 70% of a bird's native range is native plants, then the bird population could be restored. As it is, we've lost 3 billion of them, and these are the common birds. These are not the threatened birds. These are our regular backyard birds because the places where they live, which were historically grasslands, are being used the most, used up the most rapidly and turned into lawns and landscapes that are food deserts for them. So what can you do for less lawn? There's a lot of options. I call it adventures in mowing, let stuff go. But if you let stuff go and just put in a little patch of lawn, it looks intentional. And it also showcases trees and makes them look special, even if they're not like otherwise like an ornamental or special tree, these are just local native wild cherries. But if you put them in a patch of lawn, suddenly they look, oh, there's something nice about that. And of course you can go for an entirely non-lawn front yard. Um, most people don't use their front yards anyway, so why not think about that? And, or you can just go for a completely flower lawn. These are, this is the lawn I did that, was just based on what if we let, what if we encouraged all the weeds that the people are trying to extirpate from local lawns? So these are this is a combination of that. Like all we found all the, the, the weeds that we thought were cute. It, it's it's a spring thing, and then we go on to um, just allowing the grass to grow occasionally, and we use a very short grass for the summer. And clover is. Um, at the very least, let clover come in because clover fixes nitrogen and it's a really good companion plant to grass. Grass is a monoculture, does have more problems. So if you let clover come in, the stress on the lawn is much less. And so that your chemical needs are immediately reduced. And, and so, so, is, so is your, the, the care you have to give. 
and mowing high is important. You grow to, go, grow to four, cut to three. The more leaf blade you have, the more photosynthesis, the deeper the roots, the healthier the plant. Using sharp blades is always a good idea because otherwise you're tearing the ends and that's like surgery with a dull knife. And really critical is starting to change people's perception about grass clippings. They should stay on the lawn. But in order to do that, you really need to use a mulch mower so that the grass clippings are cut up very fine. If your lawn is not chemically treated so that the organisms that, that decompose the grass clippings are alive and doing well, it will break down and if properly mulch mode, it's gone in half a day. It, there's, it's, it's gone. If you have clients who are worried about that, you can blow or rake just some areas where you know they might be walking within the few hours that after the mowing, but beyond that, it should be fine. Most people don't walk on most of their lawns anyway. And the other thing to make sure of is that the mowing regime is aligned with the watering schedule. If you water the morning before the mowers come and the grass is all wet, you're going to have a problem. It's gonna turn into big slimy lumps. So, and everybody's heard about leaving the leaves. Um, that's a whole other conversation in itself. Um, another thing that I think is a, an interesting challenge for every kind of project, residential, commercial, urban, whatever, is to how much of your biomass can you actually keep on a site? Because that's what your property made for itself. That's what the place, that's its own food. So it's going to be obviously the ideal food as opposed to imported anything, mulches or anything. So this is an example of a haystack made with the cuttings from the meadow, a, a log wall made with trees that were removed, invasive trees that were removed. And twigs make great habitat piles. So thrushes and little bunnies and all kinds of, of pollinators can live in there. And eventually they just return to the soil. Uh, I use bark chips for pads a lot. They are not only good way to use up bark chips and chipping, it's good for places that are shady. Um, it's completely permeable and they're completely re replaceable and they're somewhat tick free. Making compost is one other way to get rid of biomass. I know there are a lot of sites particularly public sites that having a compost heap may not be an option, but it might be. Uh, maybe, maybe you just have to ask, you know, think about it. Um, it's a wonderful way to engage the community. It can be really funky. This is a, a kind of a composter called a green um, Johanna, and you can put meat, fish, and dairy in it. And this is uh, like going bigger. Just, it can be tidy and it can be a very interesting way to engage your community and your clients and take care of all that biomass and never buy another ounce of compost or mulch and have the compost and mulch that is exactly ideally suitable for your site. And then when you get the mulch, um, what are you going to do with it? When this is not it, <laughs> this is really bad for trees. <laughs> And this is like, and the daffodils are sort of adding an insult to this injury. Um, so this has become a very common practice in the landscape world because landscapers think that it makes clients think that they've done their job. 
and it, they sell more mulch because they show up with a lot of mulch and they're not taking it back to the shop. So they're just going to dump it around the trees. Clients have now come to think that this is a good thing that needs some rethinking. Um, this too, the idea of putting wood chip mulch throughout beds, I find um, counterproductive. It's, oh, it's, it's a growth suppressor. This should be solid plants. The best way to inhibit weeds is lots of plants. So just buy smaller plants and lots of them. Use compost, not bark chips. Bark chips eat up the nitrogen and they really inhibit your plants from growing in well. This is what a natural ecosystem looks like. There is no mulch, there are no bare spaces. And this is what a completely artificial ecosystem as I, that I made can look like, but there is no mulch and there are no bare spaces. And um, so that goes with designing for habitat on a much smaller, more personal scale. You know, just let stuff grow. If you pack them in and let things fill in, they will take over a space and they will provide habitat. Most of these plants look really good throughout the winter, which is really important to leave them standing. There are insects that are living in there and um, they want the longest season possible. Habitat is food, shelter, and water. So these plants are providing food and shelter. Shelter means not only a place to um, hide from predators, but a place to raise your young. And water, well, if you can do it, I always like to put in a pond um, <laughs> because everything shows up and it's actually in the long run really low maintenance. But you can always do a bird bath and, you know, all kinds of people show up for bird baths. And, um, or I do what's called a bee beach. Bees need very shallow water at the edges so that they can walk up and sip. And so a little dripping um, shallow water feature is, is something that I try to include always. If it's dripping, it, it doesn't grow mosquitoes because the water runs through and the bees can walk on a lot of little edges there and get their drink. Bees need, especially honeybees, need a lot of water to make honey. Um, leaving standing dead, people are just plain too tidy these days, and it's become a real problem for um, pollinators and for insects that feed birds and birds to have shelter as well. So if you ever have a chance to leave a standing dead tree, do it. Um, also just deadwood and trees, it's good for them. We do not need to remove every bit of deadwood because um, that's where a whole, a complete range of insects lives. That once that falls down, it's a different set of insects, but I call these micro uh, habitats that are endangered in most landscapes. And then once it's down, you never know what's gonna pop up. This is a, a stinking horn mushroom, which came up in, in a wood chip path. And you've got to share, because we all focus on environmentally sound vegetable gardens. That was, that's food for human. That's our number one thought always is food for us. But actually we have to feed all other life on earth. And where you live is it, or are designing or wherever gardens are that you are making, that place is as important as any other place to some life form. And if we don't start sharing them, we will continue the crash 
that is happening in the insect and bird and biodiversity worlds. Um, this is a red maple. Yes, this amount of chewing is absolutely great. There, a, a tree can lose easily 20% of its leaf surface every single year. It is a salad bar for nature. If you hired, if you saw this nibbling and you saw the caterpillars that did it, and you called a spray program to deal with this or someone, what are they going to give you? They're going to spray it. And you just interrupted the food web. It is, I have had trees on projects that were completely stripped of leaves. This can happen once every few years without hurting trees. And what happens is when you build that population of predators, you get an amazing response in the bird world to those pet predators. And by the next year, you'll have the birds and not the predators. And this is an example. <laughs> so bird, a chickadee needs six to 9,000 caterpillars to raise one nest of young in a season. And if chickadees can't raise two or three nests of young, their populations decline. And that's what's happening. They've got no caterpillars. And if, you, if everybody doesn't know what bugs are and they see something scary like this and they say, oh, quick, you know, get out the pesticide, what they've killed is the aphid loving, aphid devouring nymph form of this. And oh, I don't know how that got in there, but anyway, another opportunity for water. <laughs> and, and another upper, oh, this was my bee beach. This is another bee beach and my dog drinking out of it, huh, out of sequence. Um, so designing for independence is also important. If you can work with nature on the designs for um, landscapes, there's so much less input required and less likely to get out of control because <laughs> what is out of control when you've already relinquished a certain amount of control to nature. And so here's a house that ended up, we ended up putting zero lawn in and letting nature just take over this. All of the plant palette was taken from the surrounding woods and we simply brought it in and then made elevated walkways so that the landscape could simply grow right on through. And or people use mo most of the use of Roundup on, on landscapes is to keep pavement and driving and, and roads clear. So what if we rethought that a little bit? What if they didn't have to be completely like aseptically cleaned? What if there was a, a mid-range in there? And designing for resilience, of course, is what we all want to have to think about now so that the, the property in the foreground has a buffer and it's filled with wildflowers. The properties in the background are largely mowed close to the water. Which one is gonna be more resilient when the tides come in, when the you know, high tides from storms hit? It's pretty clear. Which one is gonna filter all of the, the chemicals from the lawn and the runoff from up in the watershed better? That's clear too. And so different buffer zones in different ways as you move away from the water, looking at the ecosystems that exist and trying to copy them as closely as you can is a really great way to make a landscape that will be largely self-sufficient. And they're beautiful year round. 
this is a really important factor, I think, of native landscapes that how much winter interest they have. And then spring interest, this is my meadow that this year we cut with a scythe, just taking it to like, how far can you take it? Um, cutting it by hand, but it made such beautiful hedgerows. And then we made a Romanian haystack. And then a turtle moved in. And so what's happening now in the design world, we know that it's happening um, because like here, here's Brooklyn Bridge Park and how wonderful that this native landscape is actually enjoyed and, and enjoyed and, and loved by the people who visit it. This would probably not have been possible 10, 20 years ago, but this is what's changing the perception of the people who visit gardens and the people who own gardens. And this is the, this is the, the line I really wanna, I wanna push. How can we get more people to embrace this look? This look, which is taking care of itself and highly ecologically productive. And this here is a, a bog in a pond I did that um, we added, you know, you can make it look, is this messy or is this amazing? Cause it's filled with Saracenias. And how, where, do, where does inspiration come from? This is a meadow on a, in a local preserve that I feel like, wow, that looks like, a, like somebody designed it, but it's better. So my feeling is you go out into nature, take some pictures of things that look good and copy it. I mean, what could be better than this? And yeah, you can tidy it up a bit, but to me, this is like a really, really beautiful um, scene. And letting go, you know, just take some areas of lawn and stop mowing. This is one, just stop mowing here. And this is what came up. It's not always that lucky, but it's always good to see what's there. And mullein, one of my favorites that is considered a rank weed, but what's ugly about that? And in an area we stopped mowing, a morel. That was pretty amazing. And lady slippers on a client's property where they stopped mowing. So the whole key is make a commitment. It's your children, it's your pets, um, it's yourself, it's, it's your, your planet. So make a commitment to stop using pesticides and to plant natives and to trickle down start getting landscapers to take the educational courses. Great news about COVID is that there are far more online opportunities for learning. So um, depending on where you are, you can find them on our website, um, but they're, they're coming on. We're, landscape contractors traditionally, or like by and large, are not trained in plantsmanship. They're real good with equipment, but they're not plantsmen. How do we shift that? How do we create not only the existing group of people to have a much greater awareness of the lives in their hands, but also a whole new generation of people. I would love to see a new generation of young people who are not just going to farming and growing food for people, but going into landscaping and growing food for the rest of life on earth. And so that's what two thirds is for the birds is about. It's a call to action to all of you designers who want to be sustainable, to make a commitment to planting two out of three native plants. So for every three plants, two of them are native. So you still get a third exotic, which 
most people wouldn't even notice the difference. No, it, remove um, invasives and stop using pesticides. That's, that's the core commitment. And we know based on Doug Tallamy's research that this is a sufficient, this is a baseline for success. If you can do this, you are actually creating viable habitat that is sufficient to turning the bird loss around. And if we start connecting small, large, urban, suburban, all kinds of properties together, we will then connect our national parks. So Perfect Earth Project is still here to, is, is, the, is where you turn to for then the how to do it. So make your commitment on, on two thirds for the birds. There's a whole community there. And then Perfect Earth Project is here to teach you how. And there we are. So open up for. Right. Fantastic. Thank you, Edwina, very, very much. You're very so, welcome. Um, I would like to maybe fine tune some of this for the, for in terms of design. And for example, what we do here at Sawyer Burson, which is convincing and educating clients about the, the aesthetics of this and how we can make things beautiful by just changing people's point of view. And the question came up here about the crows, crows taking over San Francisco, which sounds absolutely horrific. Um, but uh, why other birds are scarce these days? How do we get them back, uh, get the crows out of town? Um, Pamela writes, but I'm wondering if this is, these situations are, are, are pretty much an imbalance. That's what you're talking about. When we are, when we are designing and building landscapes and providing food for insects and birds, it's the type of insects and birds that we attract as a result of what we're planting, right? So yes. that's when we get these tilted populations of bird types and species that might not represent what we would ideally want in terms of overall balance. What, what, what is, that's basically, does that come down to food and, what, and habitats, obviously? Yeah, and see, bird, crows are highly adaptable to the human, to the human dominated landscape, which simply means that crows have filled in the spaces that have been absented by the birds who no longer have the, the, the food and shelter in the landscape that they need. So um, it would simply be, crows, crows don't have the same diet as a, a robin or a chickadee. And so if, if like robins and chickadees or whatever the other, the lost birds of San Francisco are, because I'm not really that strong on my birds, um, then the, if those birds have what they need, they will start to put the balance back. So the, and then and, and as part of that, and, and Pamela writes again about soils uh, for small city gardens and how you get it. But I, I think, see it more as how you uh, build it. And maybe we can, you know, what we do here at our, when we're doing a new project or coming in to replant an old one or do uh, anything that uh, we're going to be digging things up. We, 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 re, we uh, do our soil science studies. We see what's going on in terms, not just drainage, but the makeup of the soil, what it needs, uh, basically building a, a, a better substrate for, for gardens that are gonna be healthier and, and much more sustainable in the end. But it's soils and that's where we have, we at the front of the project, this is our, where our, big, our, 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 our work really starts is to examine and make sure that we are approaching it from a, 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 you know, the health of the soil before we 
establish or plant the gardens. And I think for everybody, I, it's a hard thing to do, right? If you've got even from a terrace to a city garden to a big landscape, it's about how you, you, you can't, you're just not planting, right? We've got to make sure that those soils are, are really ideal for it. So how would we, you know, I, we just, we, we do try to keep a lot of the biomass on site, put it back into the soils. What is the average, what do we, how do we take that to, um, uh, you know, how do, what would a gardener, you know, people that don't have help, in other words, <laughs> landscapers, um, or do have some help, what we, what would we tell them, you know, that may not have access to all this expertise that we do? Well, for, for one thing, the first thing for soil is stop killing it. <laughs> no, that's because so if you use a fungicide, you know, the, the whole soil biome is really based on fungi, the mycorrhiza, the whole, we're hearing so much about that. And a fungicide would kill, would automatically kill it. A fungicides also kill the nematodes that are the natural control for grubs. So right away, no fungicides. And fungicide, the need for fungicides is often based on watering, incorrect watering, or incorrect choice of plants. So that, um, that also right plant, right place, going forward. If you have plants that require constant input, maybe it's time to just let them die, you know, or, or move them to a, figure out why, why aren't they happy? Because, um, and, and if, if that can be remedied, like it's like if you are ill, you don't just keep taking aspirin forever. You know, or sound old fashioned, probably nobody takes aspirin, but um, you know, you don't take drugs. You know, you, what you wanna do is get to the core of why do I feel sick? You know, so what is wrong with me? And, and that's, um, so rather than just keep throwing a pesticide or a fertilizer or some other chemical response at plants, you gotta find out what's wrong with you. And it could be that this plant just isn't right for your place. And that's what, and so it's in the wrong soil. And so if you don't want to rip your whole place apart, if you, let, if you let the soil be by composting, putting compost back, by if it's highly compacted, I don't use an aerator, I use a, a spading fork. I think spading forks are a lot more effective because you're not turning the soil over. You're simply pushing air down in. You have to have a certain percentage of air for healthy soil biome. And um, I, Basically, if, if you're a, a, a homeowner who is just going to move forward on your own, unless you have a real mystery about soil that you can't solve, I don't bother with soil tests. For large projects where you're really doing major, they're essential. Any professional who doesn't do a soil test isn't really being professional. But for a homeowner, I've gotten my soil tested any number of times. And what did I do with the test? I said, oh, that's interesting. And it goes in the drawer. <laughs> you know, I don't really, I, I don't really. It, it, it doesn't really tell you what you need to do except to add product. And I don't believe that adding product is ever an answer. You're never going to change the pH of your soil. If you live in a place where the soil is acidic, you're not going to change that soil. There's a reason it's acidic. So plant plants that like acid soil, it's quite simple. If you're growing vegetables, use raised beds. So then you can just, then you import the soil or make the soil and make what you need. And then the only time, you know, but that's all agriculture based when you do the intensive soils, a lot of inputs, because food crops are a constant, 
it's just you're, you're constantly harvesting. It's an extraction-based system. Whereas as a horticultural and ornamental or recreational landscape, it's not extraction-based. You, you should close the loop. And then your soils will be fine. Just depends on how much of a hurry you're in. And then, and part of that, what 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 if you you inherit or you have a soil or you've been using a landscape contractor who's been basically pumping all sorts of things? I mean, what 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 do you do if it, you feel it's damaged or uh, what what you know? Where do we start? You know, when it when you when you know something has been uh, when a, a, per, a garden or or bed or an entire landscape has been soaked with chemicals for years, if not decades, just stop there. You you. The earth is so amazingly good at healing. So it will heal itself. Number one, you just have to like go cold turkey. There is no halfway with chemicals to, in my mind. There's no reason to be. Um, the only time that I ever feel that uh, a application of a pesticide or something would be warranted is if you were in charge of a very expensive or a very special collection of exotic plants at a public garden. You know, that's been done over the years. Those plants are exotic. They're there for teaching and whatever. And you're charged with caring for them. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? But you're not going to take any chances. But in your home garden, just start watching. Start letting things be themselves. Stop chopping them. Every every pruning cut is a wound. We, 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 so chopping stuff and shaping it and nipping out every branch yeah, you should take out crossing branches because they are wounding each other. Right. But other than that, like constant, like pruning, 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 is just that that's stressful. So the first thing I say to people is just let it be for a while and see what happens. Wait, I'm hopping in. I'm, like, I'm not even here, but I mean, just I'm not going to turn on my camera. But I, Edwina, this is like so fascinating to me. I can't even tell you. I can oh, good. sit on here for hours with you and ask you questions. But so, you know, a lot of people on the East coast and then I'll stop, but a lot of people, like I have all these grasses, these big, beautiful grasses. Well, they chop them down to the nub. So it looks like a bunch of dead polka dots in my yard, um, on my property. And, and do you, or should you leave that stuff up and not cut it back or cause is it, cause otherwise it just, you know, in the winter, it probably shouldn't be there anyway. I thought they were natives. I'm starting to think that my whole yard, my whole property is <laughs> stuff that is not native. And so, you know, you're like, do you cut that back? Do you cut back the hydrangeas? I know how you feel about hydrangeas, but if you've got them, <laughs> you cut them back or do you just leave them dead hanging there? And what do you do about that? Well, you've raised a lot of points here. So I'll try to <laughs> go zip through. Number one, the big, the big grasses that you're referring to, may be miscanthus, and miscanthus sinensis is becoming highly invasive. It, it'll sit there and look fabulous for a few years, up to like 10, 15 years, and then suddenly it's gonna start showing up all over your property and in your neighboring wild areas. So hopefully it'll be banned in most states soon. On the other hand, as an ornamental, which I have planted lots of it in my career, um, you leave it standing in the winter because the winter aspect is one of the great beauties of ornamental grasses. Is like they're just you know they, they really come into their own starting in the fall and do their fabulous thing and they should be left up all winter and you cut them down in the spring but as I said you might want to reconsider the miscanthus sinensis. Can I I would like to see I, I that point Edwina leads me always back to where we as design professionals are in the position to 
change our clients' minds, right? Educate them and also mm-hmm. make them, help them see what is a more interesting, richer, and in, my, in, in our view, at least mine and Vina's view, a more beautiful landscape. And I think lawns and, you know, for, for what we try, what, and Michael brings up the point about um, uh, crabgrass and so forth, but I try to, I, the first, one of the first things we bring up in landscapes is the portion percentage of lawn, but not just the, that aspect of it, what the lawn looks like. And you brought it up in your presentation. And to me now, I try to explain, because I don't, I no longer feel this way, I, I did for a, a long time, that a, a perfect uh, Kentucky bluegrass lawn is beautiful. I don't think they're beautiful. They're not interesting. They're completely static and they're boring. And I think they're tacky. And so we as design professionals, I want, I, t- I always try to, put this in terms of frame it from aesthetics and design. That's why people are hiring us, right? Mostly. What they don't really maybe know is that we're trying to improve the health <laughs> of our gardens and our earth and so forth and so on. But through our, 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 our vision of, of what's good design. And I think that, and especially the lawns I've seen of yours are absolutely stunning. The, clo- the introduction of clover, different grass types, the richness and layering of the lawn to me is absolutely wonderful. And, you know, I'm doing it with my lawn and having such a great time, but I let the crabgrass go wild right now. And, but Michael Boudreau is asking about, well, and, 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 that, and that's, that's what I, you know, we can plant it. And, but I, I want to, first of all, there are beautiful lawns and then there are boring lawns. And then there are landscapes that are just static, as you point out, but then there are the landscapes when you hear the birds, you see the butterflies, the bugs flying around. It's the most wonderful experience and most people cannot see it even if you put them in front of them. In front of them. And you get them into when, but I did have a client call about some butterflies starting to emerge and she was almost in tears. And I was like, see, that's what, that's what, led, that's what this is. It's not just a, something stuck in there, a shrub or a box or to look at. Anyway, it's, it's, it's always, I think, important for us to think, you know, through the lens of aesthetics, good design, and what is, um, you know, what is, what we should do as, as design professionals to educate our clients. That's what, so. And, yeah, people rely on us for that. They don't know what, they don't know, they don't know. They don't think about it that way. They don't think about those. They're they relying on us and, and we, we need to be not lazy. Because it's really easy if you don't know what to do, just fill a place of lawn. Like you run out of ideas, or you run out of budget, or you run out of something, and yeah. it's just make it lawn or cave in to a client who says, I want that all to be lawn. Let me, I just want to be, I don't want to run out of time before I answer Michael's question about crabgrass because it's a very yeah, yeah. useful, <laughs> it, it, it happens to everyone. Crabgrass is an opportunistic warm season grass and it's an annual. So, Crabgrass seeds don't germinate until later in the season. So they only grow in places where there's a space that's filled with sun and plenty of water. So the, the, you can outcompete it. So that space and plenty of water is, is, is usually exists in either, either in a new lawn that you're trying to establish or a lawn that has problems and dead patches. So there's, it's thin or it's cut so short that it's like a super short haircut and the scalp is getting sunburned, you know? So that's where crabgrass will do. So that, so if you simply remove the conditions that make crabgrass happy and it doesn't happen overnight, it might take two years, but you don't have to pull it out. Although it is good to cut it before the seed goes all over the place. But if you keep overseeding, 
and getting the grass to get up in the spring, best to do it in the fall. So it grows and, it's, and it completely shades out the soil. If the soil is shaded out, the crabgrass will ultimately not have a place to grow. And if you do not water lawns in the spring, do turn your system on, but do not start watering until it's asking for it, which is sometime in the East Coast, in the Northeast is sometime mid to late June. If, you're, if, you're, if you leave a footprint in the grass, then your grass is starting to wilt and that's the time to do it. If people who are just hiring a landscape company and that landscape company hands the irrigation issues over to the irrigation company, they are set for three times a week, 20 minutes a time. And it's the same all through the season. And now that's just, it's just got to change. I've so. had a good bit of luck. I've just ignored it. I've been overseeding and the crabgrass every now, every, it diminishes every year. And you get that splash of kind of a beautiful green, actually. Yeah. You know, they emer- they come out and then they then they di- then they die off. It's kind of fun, but they're getting fewer and fewer. And I just decided I'm just going to overseed and not worry about it. And, and it takes some time, but that I think is much more interesting than trying to. And and, and Michael, please nobody get down their hands and knees and start pulling out crabgrass. <laughs> well, they do. I do. You do. You do. You have the energy for <laughs> that. Says, oh my god. Sure. Sure. Well, you know, crabgrass also, even after your lawn is established and you've gotten rid of it in most places, it tends to then show up in, next to um, hot paving because pavers are too hot. The lawn grass doesn't like heat and their roots get too hot so that it'll sort of get weak around a paver stone. And that's where crabgrass will appear. So what I've learned to do is you lower the if you, if you can lower the grade around it so the roots get under the stone and stay cool, it helps. But in the beginning, I'm, I do pull out the crabgrass. Well, Michael notes that he does pull out the crabgrass. And, and violets, I'm, I'm so what glad you're liking your violets because violets, oh, yeah. violets serve a lot of pollinators. They're a really important pollinator plant. So Where do we go for violets? Where's the best, some good sources for violet and clover seeds or plugs? Um, Ooh, I don't know, but um, check. Uh, let's see who is. There's a the the Peconic Estuary Program has a has a good source guide. Ladybird Johnson Wildflower Center, I think Audubon Xerces, Xerces. There's there's Xerces insect. You know they're the insect protector people. There's you. There are places that have good um, listings because. It's really important to find seed that isn't grown with neonics. Neonicotinoids are the insect, uh, are the pesticides that are systemic. So they get into, they put them on seeds and plants, then they're in the pollen and they're in the nectar. And, and so they're actually pollinator plants, seeds and plants that are grown with plant, with grown with a systemic pesticide that kills them. <laughs> okay, one so, more, a couple more. Um, how high and how often again for lawn cutting? Uh, um, grow to uh, four, cut to three. What? Grow to four, cut to three. There you go. Grow so if you four, put a credit card on end and stick it in the grass, that's kind of the height your lawn should be. And deep watering once a week in the hot months? Probably. It's Probably. really hard. I you just that's the one thing you cannot give somebody a, a yeah, hard and fast rule because it, is your soil sand? Is it sunny? Is it shady? Is it on a slope? What are the plants? Yeah, but what you, I have a water 
a, me a moisture meter, it's the best. You stick it in the ground, and you should you should water to six inches down and then let it dry to five or six inches down. It's a trouble with automatic sprinkler systems and there must be an app for that based on, I never trust those uh, rain gauge. Things uh, well, the new automatic ones, yeah, they, they work off NOAA, but they don't really know what the moisture in your soil is. That's and true. that's what I'm go. dreaming. That's what's under, that's the next big technological advance will be individual heads that each head tests the moisture level of the soil at five or six inches down and goes on when it's dry down there and goes off when it's wet. Okay. Edwina, you better hope that I don't have your cell phone number because <laughs> I'm going to be texting you all the time. It's, it's okay. It's, it's okay. So <laughs> Gary asks about, you You showed a picture of the dandelion. What about the great American dandelion? What do we think about it? Well, dandelions are in, somewhat like crabgrass. They're opportunistic. They are perennial, so they're a little bit harder to get rid of long-term, but it, they are an indicator species, really. So if you have a lot of crabgrass or a lot of dandelions, it means that your lawn grass is weak for some reason because they really can't grow that well where lawn grass, where turf really knits. They, they just can't get a foothold. So that's an indicator that there's something like in the soil or in your management practices that is favoring the conditions that dandelions like. You will always get a couple. And my feeling is, so what? Um, they're not native, but they are, the bees love them and they're pretty. Do you know the um, chemical preen? Yeah, it, but, and there's it, two, there's preen and preen and they're both pre-emergence and one is OMRI or organic listed and I can never keep them straight, but I don't believe in pre-emergence, pre-emergence suppress seeds. Um, basically what you wanna use is natural practices that outcompete seeds. Because if you kill the seeds, you're killing the good seeds with the bad seeds because they are indiscriminate seed killers and, and you're creating an open space. So at some point after you kill the seeds, that seed killing capacity is going to be lost or something's going to refill that hole. Yes, that nature will not allow a, a perfectly nice open space of soil to exist. Okay, good. Uh, the, um, then there, here's a question Scott asked um, about issues with plastic irrigation drips. I'm not oh, sure. Oh, yeah. I never said, what's my problem with them? <laughs> so, <laughs> they're, they're, they're just great for getting trees established and for getting woodies established. They're good. I have found, however, that since this is just my own particular personal rant, that since that they have become the, you know, the, the, the default for a new planting, the guys don't plant trees properly anymore. It used to be that you do a little at a time, you watered in, you backfilled, you watered in, and now they don't worry about that because the trees stay alive even if there are air pockets in the planting hole. So that's one thing. The other thing is they're usually like here. So where are your roots gonna be, but like here, and they should be, at, they should be maybe one to two rings on the root ball, depending on the size of the root ball, but then there should be at least one ring on the outside of the root ball so that the roots are growing out into the surrounding land. The other thing is that then they're left on for years. They're just left on forever. So, so the trees grow extra growth, they're, they're height. Then the people come in and tell you your trees need to be fed. 
Then they, so they throw soft growth, which is highly attractive to um, sucking insects, all insects that are predators. And so then the, the landscape guys come in and cut all that off. So your tree has lost, so lost all that growth that it, you, you made it grow. And then it needs more food because you weakened it again. So this is a really nasty cycle, but it's a very good business model for tree people. Well, we just, <laughs> we have a few minutes, we have a few seconds left. Just one last thing about those yeah. drip tubes. When did someone decide that we don't see them? <laughs> like they are ugly. They're and, so ugly. And I they are impossible to keep them under mulch. And I don't want all that mulch in my gardens. So and ugly. I don't want to see plastic. I mean, they're just, and, and the fact that like you can put in a nice garden and then the irrigation guys can come in and fill it with plastic and nobody cares. Well, generally we let them on for two years max and that's it. That's yeah. it. That's it's the way to go. The most hideous yeah. thing. Because generally wow. your lawn irrigation, if you're watering properly, seldom and deep, your trees are going to get what they need. They and, and, and the only time a, a woody plant, if it is the right plant in the right place, the only, and it's a native, the only time it really needs supplemental watering is in the case of a really serious drought, because otherwise it's growing in the woods and it's fine. Okay. Well, good. Thank you, Edwina. Thank You're you. So welcome. Thank you for a very thoughtful, insightful program. This has been fantastic. And everybody out there, we hope you found this useful and, and, and that you'll implement some of these ideas and, 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 and all these policies with your, your, our, your clients and yourselves and have fun with it too, because it's really interesting. You just get more and more excited about your landscape and the ones you're designing. Um, but I just want to note that next month, DLN will be back with another expert access webinar with a with a closer look, a closer look, excuse me, at website design for design firms, how to approach this important client touch point. And registration for this webinar can be found on the DLN website. So please check it out, register for that one. Everybody's concerned about their website. I'm first in line. But anyway, Edwina, thank you. This is so you're, great. You're welcome. And please go to 234birds.org and sign up and check it out. <laughs> I want your responses. <laughs> And as a member, as I am lucky enough to sit on Edwina's board at Perfect Earth, it has been an incredibly enriching thing for my firm as, as architects and landscape architects. And our clients are really loving it. We have found it's a really great way to engage them in a much closer and dynamic way with their landscapes and their gardens. And it's wonderful. So Edwina, thank you very, very much. Thank you. And... Rebecca, Megan, thank you all very much. And I think we're, we're keep plugging away at this, just so you guys know, I'm committed. Megan's committed. I know we are. We're just going to keep building interest around this and probably getting you guys to talk about it again, because I think we're all just in a complete fog of misinformation. Truly. Well, and it's so funny because it's just, it takes so little to peel away these, these layers of mis misinterpretation and uh, about what you're seeing and what you're doing. It, it's just so, we're all, we find if people are very close to understanding this information, if it's put in front of them and it's, it's and appreciating it and using it. And again, I think it's an ideal way for us to approach our clients when it comes to the best ways to design and build landscapes. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, let's keep working at it. Let's plug away. Everybody's super happy that you guys did this and, and we'll do it again soon. Great. Thank, Thank you, everybody. Have a wonderful day. Thank you, everybody. Bye. Bye.